Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Two down, one to go. That's where we stand with the UAW. Automaker Stellantis makes a deal with striking workers. The White House with an executive order reining in AI. This is likely to be the most aggressive piece of American regulation over this fast-growing new industry for some time to come. Courtroom drama on two fronts. Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai testifying in a landmark antitrust case. Anish Chopra, former U.S. chief technology officer, on the questions raised for Google search. It couldn't come at a better time with the advent of AI to have a new type of search experience appear as a potential default in our daily lives. And Sam Bankman-Fried on trial for misuse of client funds and not doing so hot, according to people in the room like Puck News' Teddy Schleifer. Sam has not mounted a credible defense to date. Plus, the rest of today's news that got us squawking. It's Monday, October 30th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And yes, it's a Monday. And uh, if you're here in New York, it is raining and raining hard, raining like cats and dogs out there. We made it in. Check it out. This was um, West Side Highway is a lot of fun on days like this. You can only travel in the middle lane. You got to go really slow. So we're here and I'll take that as a victory this morning, too. The United Auto Workers Union reaching a tentative deal with Stellantis over the weekend, but expanded its strike against GM. Phil LeBeau joins us with all of the latest details. Phil, where are we here? Andrew, a very busy weekend. Two down, one to go. That's where we stand with the UAW and its ongoing strikes or strikes that are now finished with the uh, big three. Here's what we had over the weekend. On Saturday, Stellantis and the UAW reached an agreement, uh, a tentative agreement, for a new four-and-a-half-year contract. That's significant since many thought that it would be General Motors which would have the next agreement. Part of that agreement, this is huge. They're going to reopen the Stellantis plant outside of Rockford, Illinois, a thing many thought would not happen in these negotiations. Meanwhile, The UAW threw a curveball. Once they announced that agreement, they said, you know what, we're going to expand the General Motors strike. We're going to call in the plant in Tennessee, in Spring Hill, Tennessee. That plant, by the way, builds three Cadillac models. And if you add the production at that plant, along with the other uh, three plants that are already on strike uh, for the UAW with General Motors, that means 50.8% of General Motors' U.S. production has now been stopped by strikes. Is that enough to get GM and uh, and UAW to finalize an agreement? General Motors putting out a statement after the uh, new strike was announced in Spring Hill, Tennessee, saying, We have continued to bargain in good faith with the UAW, and our goal remains to reach an agreement as quickly as possible. Now that they have these agreements in place, and by the way, they outlined the Ford agreement last night, which includes $8.1 billion in new commitments to facilities that uh, the UAW staffs, As part of that, over the next uh, couple of days, we will see ratification votes. Maybe not the next couple of days. may take a couple of weeks. But that's the expectation. And while that happens, you will see Ford and UAW workers return to work. And gradually, production will begin restart at those plants where strikes were taking place. Guys? Can can you explain this, though? In terms of what's on the table at GM, how is it different, if it does at all, from what Stellantis accepted and what Ford has accepted? 
Well, we don't know the particulars, but my guess is what you're looking at here is Sean Fain and the UAW really trying to push on the economics as much as possible. And in that regard, they've got the 25% raise that they've already locked in from, uh, from Ford and Stellantis. Likely you're going to see the same thing from General Motors as well, as well as other commitments, cost of living, 401k contributions, retirement, uh, employees, starter pay for the UAW being much higher than where it is right now. So I, I suspect, Andrew, what you're looking at right now is them trying to lock in commitments for future investment in different plants. Now, that may also include commitments for saying if these uh, there's an EV battery plant, do those people come into the master contract? Obviously, those employees in the future right. have to vote on that. And we don't know if that's going to be part of the GM-UAW negotiation. That is part of the Ford agreement uh, with the UAW that some of the workers at some of the plants that are planned uh, in the future if those workers vote to join the UAW, that they might be part of the Ford master contract. So that's what we think it is at this final stage. And look, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear an announcement in the next couple of days that GM and the UAW have an agreement. We know they were close late last week and over the weekend. Phil LeBeau, we will keep watching all of this and coming on back to you on all of it as well. Thank you. The White House releasing details of a new executive order that would direct federal agencies to regulate as well as shape the growth of artificial intelligence. Eamon Javers joins us now with more. If they got up, I guess you had to get up, Eamon. That's right. <laughs> no way around it, Joe. Good morning. Uh, this is an extraordinarily wide-ranging executive order. It's directing just about every federal agency to regulate and, as you say, shape the growth of AI in an effort to protect the public, the economy, and national security. Now, President Biden's power is limited here to the executive branch with this executive order, uh, but with Congress unlikely to be able to produce new laws around this until next year, if at all, this is likely to be the most aggressive piece of American regulation over this fast-growing new industry for some time to come. Among the safety measures here, Biden will require developers of the most powerful AI systems to share their safety test results with the U.S. government. The National Institute of Standards and Technology will set, quote, rigorous standards for extensive red team testing to ensure safety before public release of any AI products. And agencies that do biotech projects will be required to develop strong new standards for biological synthesis screening. In an effort to limit deep fakes and misinformation, the Department of Commerce will develop guidance for content authentication and watermarking to clearly label AI-generated content. And to prevent uh, AI-fueled leaps in cyber attacks, the administration says it will use AI tools to develop uh, fixes for vulnerabilities in critical software. There's also an effort here to stop unintentional AI-based discrimination. The order is going to provide guidance to landlords, federal benefits programs, and federal contractors to keep AI algorithms from being used to worsen discrimination. And the Department of Justice and federal civil rights offices will train on how to investigate and prosecute civil rights violations that are related to AI. And in a nod to concerns that AI could be on the brink of eliminating millions of jobs, Biden is directing his administration to write a report on AI's potential labor market impacts and study and identify options for strengthening federal support for workers who face labor disruptions from AI. So there's a lot going on here, Joe. Back over to you. All right, uh, Eamon, we're counting on a, a light touch, I think, here. We're going to talk all about you know, where the market goes, the NASDAQ's in correction territory, and a lot of people hanging their hat on a AI super cycle. 
to, to bail us out right. in, in terms of technology. So it's going to be an interesting uh, uh, sort of a uh, intersection. Yeah, I mean, look, what you see here is government just beginning to get its arms around AI and the implications of it, trying to address safety uh, while trying not to stifle innovation. You know, there's a real tricky balance here with a technology that, you know, has so many prognostications, right? How great it could be for the economy, how great it could be for tech, how scary it could be, uh, you know, the Terminator scenario. Uh, there's a lot to think about with this. Uh, and, and government, I think, is just really getting started here. This executive order, really one of the first efforts uh, to regulate AI. We're going to see an AI safety summit in the UK this week as well. So uh, they're thinking about it over there at the same time. So countries around the world are trying to, trying to get their arms around this thing, Joe. They are. Do you think like greeting card writers, they're out of business? They're toast, are they not? <laughs> Nobody buys greeting cards anymore. What yes, about they do? And I was looking at my about goes, television you know, reporters? I, I'm just like, asking. I don't like these because somebody else wrote it and I go, actually, probably not. Yeah. Probably not somebody yeah. uh, at this point. Anyway, it's Amen. You and I are going to be replaced by Max Headroom. I don't think we are. The New York are. Times is apparently well, I don't think we are to deal with AI to go yeah. through it. So. It is coming to every industry. You'd ha you have to do AI plus Mac, 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 Mac's headroom. Uh, remember how he used to, like, he would freeze and uh, I don't the think glitch. that. Huh? It was the glitch. It was a glitch. Yeah. Maybe that will, um, maybe they fix that. Then we are screwed. Former Vice President Mike Pence saying on Saturday he is dropping his bid for the Republican presidential nomination. He had struggled to raise money and gain traction in the polls at an event in Vegas. I came here to say it's become clear to me. This is not my time. Now, Pence did not immediately endorse any of his rivals, but urged fellow Republicans to choose someone who would, quote, lead our nation with civility, unquote. The uh, journal, Mike Pence makes a gracious exit. Yep. Uh, Op-ed. The former VP goes out as a politician who put his country first. Could never, according to the journal, uh, could never uh, push back on the ire from the people that are mad that he didn't challenge the, the results of, of the election. And, and the, that mag, the MAGA group, there's a lot of people they, they would never endorse, but he's probably the one that that would never happen. So what is that, 40%? 35, 40%? Of the Republican right. primary? And there are, of the primary voters. Yeah, yeah, and there are plenty of people who have pointed out, if you have 10 people running, a very low plurality is going to right. select the nominee. So people like, like uh, Romney and others right. have said, you know, we got to winnow this field fast if there's any chance to have yep. an, an alternative. That's Nikki candidate. Haley's hope for that, too. Yeah. We had her on last week, and that is her hope for sure, is to very quickly get to the person to, you know, some, DeSantis, some yeah. DeSantis, Nikki Haley, both of them have hopes of saying, okay, I'm going to be Donald Trump or me, and, and that's the only way they, they think uh, that they can probably this is, take all. Uh, the, the, the journal both points out that this is a, a, a move putting country first, but it comes after the original move of what they call putting country first during the election. Among the other stories that we are watching, some pharmacy staff from Walgreens and other drugstore chains are planning to walk out this week in protest of what they call unsafe working conditions. 
Organizers say that they want companies to address a range of issues, including understaffed teams, insufficient pay, and increasing work expectations imposed by management. It's unclear how many workers will participate in the walkout, which is expected today, tomorrow, and Wednesday. But the organizers say the bulk will come from Walgreens, CVS, and Rite Aid. A spokesperson for CVS said the company is engaging with staff to address their concerns, and they say they aren't seeing any unusual activity regarding unplanned pharmacy closures or pharmacist walkouts. The only thing I can say, guys, I don't know, the last time, how, how often you're in a pharmacy trying to pick these things up, my CVS, every time I'm in there, there's five or six people behind the counter. They are all working the entire time, trying to answer yep. calls coming in from the drive-thru, sure. trying to do people who are walking up to the counter, trying to deal with the people they're supposed to be giving the vaccinations to. It now says at the drive-thru, by the way, that you can ask them for certain things. If you don't want to come in and get certain supplies, they'll sell them to you, which means they have to go get them and then ring them up for you and beyond. I never see a break for any of the people behind the counter on that. Like, they are working all out the entire time. One of the local ones had to, is now says that they're closed for like 25 minutes during for a lunch break, because I don't think they get a break and get to eat otherwise. And they're asking just, them to do more and more and more It stuff. is a, you can see it, it's a de demographic issue with the number of people, because every year you live, you get more likely to need a they lot need of stuff things. There. But it, it's demographic, but it's also what they're asking them to do. All right. of these well, big, like CVS, with the plans right. that they made to say, we're going to be a clinic, basically, that you can walk into and we're going to do more and more. Right. They just don't I mean, staff them properly. Right, That's the problem. I mean, there's a lot of people back there, but they are doing right. a lot of things. Same pressures that any company has yeah. on, on staffing. Yeah. Right. So, and, and I think during COVID, they were asked to do a far more a number of But things. I don't know if it's because they can't find staff. I think it's actually because it's the model. It's the business model, which yeah. I think is unto itself the problem. I, it, and it all happened while these companies were trying to create clinics that you walk into there. Right. It's, it's a different job than it used to be. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, how far will Google go to stay on top? The Department of Justice charges that Alphabet paying billions to remain the default search engine for consumers is anti-competitive, and it's all coming to a head in the landmark antitrust case in federal court. Former White House Chief Technology Officer Anish Chopra. Apple will probably want to have the best consumer experience and today, that seems to align with Google's the default choice for everyone. We all wake up in the morning and use it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. I'm producer Katie Kramer. A key witness is expected to testify today in the antitrust trial of this century. The government's case against Google, parent company Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai, will testify today in federal court. Pichai is expected to make his case that the dominance of Google's search engine is because, well, it's better than the alternatives. The government will argue that the billions of dollars Google pays to device makers like Apple and carriers like AT&T to be the default setting, well, more than $26 billion in 2021, that amounts to anti-competitive practices and crowds out other search engines. There is no jury, so both sides are making their case directly to federal judge Amit Mehta. Andrew takes it from here. We're going to continue that conversation right now with Anish Chopra. He's the a former chief technology officer at the White House, currently president of Care Journey. So curious uh, how you think both the case is going, but but effectively when you look at what uh, what Pachai may have to talk about today, it's not so much or it's not just that they agreed to these these large payments uh, to Apple, but that part of the payments, from what I can tell now, seem to be about telling Apple 
not only you'll be the default, but you're effectively going to stop working on creating, uh, you know, better search capabilities on your own. And, and how much you think that piece of it is, is, is the distinction here? Yeah, these trials are designed to discover information that looks at behaviors that result in lower competition. And that does not look good uh, from the relationship. So the dollar itself is a sizable, makes a lot of news. But I think the more important question is what behaviors uh, resulted from that payment? And in my personal view, we're kind of guiding our way through to some, let's call it a resolution or some kind of a compromise uh, settlement whereby the uh, behaviors will largely be constrained. Right now, you're operating in a world where you don't have guardrails. What's the limit? Courts are there to set the limits, and then we work within those new limits. And so I would imagine uh, there will be another round of opportunity to see a search alternative appear. And it couldn't have come at a better time with the advent of AI to have a new type of search experience appear as a potential default in our daily lives. But how do you think that's going to work? Meaning there's there's two issues here. Um, there's the issue of the technology itself. And then there's the, are we talking just about the Apple phone? Are we talking about other phones? Are we talking about Apple saying that Apple's not going to accept money for being having a default? I can't imagine they're not going to want to. They can put it up for bid, as you know, which they've done. Yeah. And Google has effectively won that bid. You could argue they had they have more scale when it comes to capital in that regard, or at least yeah. the willingness so to do it. Plus, the technology happens to be better. And so what do you do about that? Those are market forces. There is a market force element to all of this. Yeah, market forces work when you have clear rules, which is that you can pay a fair market value for a service. But if you overpay, in this case, perhaps way above what a competitor may offer, there may be that debate, which is that extraneous payment is not tied to true market forces, but rather these other behaviors. Well, wait uh, a second. Mar Microsoft's got pretty deep pockets. They could pay up for Bing if they wanted to. Well, the fair that's right. So the question is, uh, what are the rules under which that auction may take place? And how do you make sure that there's a fair and appropriate bidding process uh, within those new guardrails? So this is an area but where the courts... my, Let me ask one separate related question. I apologize for interrupting. Are you of the view that the default position on an Apple phone, for example, is supposed to simply go to the highest bidder or is it a combination of the highest bidder and the better technology? So let's say Microsoft raises its hand and says, I'm willing to pay, I don't know, $30 billion a year for this. But Apple sits around and goes, you know what, but this technology is, you know, our customers are not going to be happy with this. So we'll even take the lower bid because we think it's better. Yeah, look, this is Apple's decision. Uh, so that's not a we haven't uh, you know made a public policy around what we want uh, a, a private company's default homepage to look like. So uh, it is clearly the case that Apple will probably want to have the best consumer experience. And today that seems to align with Google's the default choice for everyone. We all wake up in the morning and use it, as uh, Satya Nadella said uh, during the trial. But if we all agree that view that's that is the case, then what are we even talking about here? Well, we're talking about making sure that the economic rules of the road promote fair and open competition. And so this is not a black and white case. We're not in this conversation because, oh, obviously this is wrong and we got to stop it. No, no, there's a lot of nuance. I mean, another angle to the nuance is these subsidies, for lack of a better term, presumably might go to make phones cheaper and therefore add more accessibility right. and therefore add more market uh, uh, exposure to people who otherwise couldn't afford fair market value price of the phone. So there's a lot of factors that are going to go into the judge's uh, 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 you know, consideration. 
But it seems to me we're heading towards what are more clear guardrails. There'll be some enforcement uh, settlement that says, okay, well, we're going to be able to compete. Google may likely still win said competition, but it may be for less uh, dollars. And there may be an opportunity for alternatives and easier switching costs to switch but who from are you the regulating? You're, re- you're regulating how Apple makes a decision or are you regulating what Google's allowed to bid? I think in this case, there may be certain, uh, that's a great question. I'll let the lawyers get into the detail as to who will own what responsibility. This is about Google's behavior. So it'll largely be about how Google can engage in the market. So my presumption would be uh, to some degree, it would be a little bit more disclosure about how and in what manner Google behaves in the market where there's deemed to be some form of competitive risk. It sounds like you're just trying to have the government decide how Apple is allowed to auction off its own space and how to do those things. Well, it does sound like the argument you just made convinced me that it's it's not a good idea, that the government just wants to be the one that decides all of this. These are, you know, like, why do you get to set the rules for what, what kind of auction they set? You want to have fair rules that bring about true competition for the value of the good being auctioned, not to allow for a premium pay. Yeah, well, the market is doing that without guardrails, so there may be a component. This is, again, the technical detail the judge will weigh in is whether the, there's a excessive payment tied to anti-competitive behavior. That's the narrow question. Is it $26 billion versus $22 that's not a level of detail we're going to learn, but it's going to be about that judgment. That's where this conversation is likely heading, and that is what will be the reasonable path forward to make sure more choice, presumably easier to switch search engines, although it's relatively easy now. There may be a little perspective on that, and also an engagement around how organizations like Google are supposed to engage in the market from the position that they hold. We will see. We will see. Nish, thank you. always appreciate your perspective on all of it. Next on Squawk Pod, the rise and fall of Sam Bankman-Fried. From a journalist who's followed the FTX scandal and the one-time crypto billionaire's criminal trial, Puck's Teddy Schleifer. If you're a juror and you're trying to sit there saying, what is the reason I have to vote to acquit? I don't know what you're looking at. I mean, you're, you're basically believing that this character is more credible than, you know, the preponderance of documentary evidence. And I got an email out of nowhere from the casting director. One big cameo. When you make it to The Simpsons, that is the height of pop culture. How many takes? You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Q. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. We're trying to stay dry because it is raining outside. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried expected to be back on the witness stand today at his federal fraud trial. On Friday, the former crypto king told jurors that he did not commit fraud and said he thought his company's outside spending, like paying for the naming rights to a sports arena, came out of company profits. He admitted he made mistakes, but said he never set out to take customers' money. Joining us right now is someone who has been following this case very closely, Teddy Schleifer, the founding partner at Puck. And uh, Teddy, this has been uh, an amazing case. I know you've been there for a lot of it and have watched testimony. You said that Caroline Ellison's testimony was for you um, pretty seminal, and you think that's going to have a big deciding factor. Sure. I mean, look, I mean, the, the entire case of the prosecution um, is bolstered by tremendous documentary evidence from the three people that he worked most closely with. Um, and you can bet that 
you know, uh, as part of the closing statements later this week, you know, you're going to hear Carolyn, Carolyn, Carolyn again and again and again. Um, you're also going to hear again and again and again later today when, you know, Sam is cross-examined um, by the defense, sorry, by the prosecution, mm -hmm. which um, is sort of the risk that Sam opened himself up to by agreeing to testify. Like, you know, last week on Friday, Sam got the chance to tell his life story, and it, I'm sure it felt good after sitting there for weeks upon end hearing people say mean things about him to say his piece. But like today is kind of the punishment for what happened on Friday, right? Now he's going to have hours upon hours of every hole poked possible in his, uh, in his testimony from Friday. And it's, it's going to be painful. It's going to be probably entertaining and it's going to be sad and, and dramatic. But um, Sam signed up for this. You, you, you guessed a long time ago that his ego would not allow him to not testify in this case. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I do not think that um, he could have resisted. Um, I mean, I, I'm open to the idea that, that, that him testifying actually could have been a rational, uh, expected value calculation, given the fact that he was already, you know, in so much legal trouble. Maybe he thought, you know, what do I have to lose? Um, but... I also think that he is somebody who has lived and seen the highest highs based on his own personality, based on that ego. And, like, he's the same person he was a year ago, right? There, there's, he hasn't undergone any sort of, some sort of personality, personality tra transplant. <laughs> um, he's, he's the same person, and he's as much a believer in his, uh, his charms and his, uh, his wiles as he was when he, you know, talked with Andrew in November 2022 or talked with me in 2020. Like... He's a believer in the Sam Bankman-Fried uh, narrative. Uh, so, do you think there's? Oh, sorry. I was going to ask. Do you think there's any juror in that room? That one juror, that single person who could ever be a holdout for him, or do you think it's just such a slam dunk at this point? Look, there's, there's 12 people there. Um, can, can you can you convince one person? Right, but is there anything that you've heard the entire time? And I will. I'll, I'll be straight with you. Sure. And I, I haven't been there as many days as you, but I feel like I have not seen. Having lived through cases, yeah. whether it was, you know, Dennis Kozlowski many, 20 years ago or Frank Quattrone, these were mistrials where there was at least a juror or something amiss, right? There were enough people in the courtroom where you'd get a feeling that there was either some sympathy for the defendant or a view that maybe the defendant was being wrongly accused or wrongly something. Right. I will tell you, you do not feel that, at least from the, the vantage point that I've had in this instance. It, it, it's, it's tough from us in, you know, in the, where we're sitting to, like, right. to you know, overly scrutinize the, uh, the, the hand through the hair or you know, the, the facial reactions of the jurors. Um, but look, Sam has not mounted a credible defense to date. I mean, the, the entire defense case is basically Sam. Um, and I, I, if you're a juror and you're trying to sit there saying, what is the reason I have to vote, you know, to, to acquit? I, I don't know what you're looking at. I mean, you're, you're basically believing that this, this character is more credible than, you know, the preponderance of, of documentary evidence. And, you know, Carolyn, Nishad, Gary. Um, I don't think Sam has given that juror a reason to a reason to acquit. We were having this conversation off air before. That yeah. There have been some people who had seen what Sam has said in the past, who have heard his, you know, his side of the story, who have walked away. And I've been surprised by some of the people who have thought, hey, you know, maybe you need to give him the benefit of the doubt in these scenarios. The evidence, I have not seen the evidence. I have not been sitting in the courtroom. What 
what do you think is the toughest thing that he's fighting in that situation? You know, I think when you look at the uh, thousand plus pieces of, of evidence that prosecutors have submitted, um, Sam talked about, you know, the, the New York Times test, that he didn't want to have things in writing that could be uh, used, ironically, you know, to, to send him to jail or, you know, to, uh, you know, create a, a negative headline for him. Um, but I think the, the, even if you ignore everything Carolyn Nishad and Gary said, um, the, the documentary evidence that is in the signal messages, the Excel spreadsheets, the Google Doc, love letter, I don't know what you want to call right. them. Right. Um, you, can, you, you, can, you can deem Carolyn, Gary, and Nishad to be total liars. Um, but I think that the actual documentation they have provided um, is, is, is convincing on its own. It's, it's convincing a, to say that he took customer funds that he was not supposed to have access to, put them in his hedge fund, and then did whatever he wanted with them and used it as a piggy bank at the same time. I mean, that's a, a fairly straightforward case. Sure. I mean, I mean Sam's going to try and make this as complex as possible. You kind of saw that a little bit yeah. on Friday where he was, you know, definitely droning on and on, probably boring people. And, you know, that now jurors have the weekend to say, well, it was really confusing. Who am I to say what, you know, the proper relationship between Alameda and FTX should really be? What do I know? I mean, that, may, maybe, Andrew, that's like what a defense looks like. It's just like this, the, the kind of the... And do you, think, do you see any separation? Yeah. I know we're going to have to run, but do you see any separation between the counts? Meaning, and, and this becomes important later, potentially, yeah. for sentencing purposes. Correct, right. Do you see, um, you know... These three counts as being, you know, unassailable, that they'll win, on, they'll convict here, but actually maybe these two other counts are more wiggly and he has opportunity there, or do you think it's like, you know, dominoes? Sure. I mean, look, I mean, I, I think that the, the, the we're going to see kind of what the charging instructions look like um, from, the, from the judge later this week, but that's, that's, that's demanding a lot of a juror to distinguish between, well, you know, they, they defrauded Sequoia, but they did not defraud a customer. I predict that if, if he's convicted on, on any, it's going, to be, it's going to be all of them. Because ultimately, this is a question about who you trust. Do you trust right. Sam or do you trust you know, the army of people testifying against them? There has, I, don't, I don't think there's much that you can kind of distinguish between on the individual charges here. Mm. Um, I'm not seeing it. Teddy, thank you very much. Sure thing. Mr. Burns, you deleted all negative tweets about Persephone. Is that evidence that you're in a kind of cult and won't hear any criticism of your leader? Yes, I am in a cult. It's called a marriage. <laughs> my wife is the head of it, and my job is to support her. Now, maybe you're the cult leader in your marriage, Andrew, but uh, I know Pilar, and I suspect you disagree. <laughs> <laughs> if you recognize that voice, that is because it was uh, me. A little weird. Uh, I'm not talking about Mr. Burns. I'm talking about uh, the character that was interviewing him. Uh, that was uh, last night's Simpsons, and... Uh, a fun that, little episode. That is cool. I mean, and, it's, and I got my wife got a shout out. Yeah. If, if you noticed, um, it was called uh, the Thirst Trap, a corporate love story. It was a sort of Silicon Valley uh, episode around a character that might be. Uh, it was like a Theranos style story, and effectively, Mr. Burns uh, had married uh, Persephone, and uh, she was involved in a uh, a, a sort of technology with bl uh, blood testing thing. Oh, my God. Here was us um, doing the interview. There was a couple, there was a lot of uh, different cameos. Kara uh, Swisher had a cameo in, in the episode as well. Um, I, I, I and, think and a number you, of when others. You make it, when you make it to The Simpsons, that is pop culture. Like, that is takes? the height of pop culture. How many takes? Uh, that was, what, 30, 20 seconds, and we probably spent an hour and a half doing, I don't know, we might even have a picture of 
How much of the re recording? The recording oh. happened during, um, this was back in March. I assumed that I would, you know, that the thing would be cut or something, right? Yeah. Like you didn't assume that the scene would ever Was the air. hour and a half, was that Persephone, the, the hour and a half? For that Just to pronounce that, right? I, I don't know, did I have to say her name in the end? I'm not, I don't really remember. Yeah, no, what, you did. Yeah. You did say You did uh, say Persephone. Let me ask you, did yeah. you, do you have a relationship with Mr. Burns? I mean, is he, is he if you ask him on deal book, because that would no, be... No, I have not. <laughs> I don't know Mr. Burns. What, and you what? just, you, you did your, I did my part uh, separately. It wasn't like they, the other um, no, if you could voices get the were there. No, actual Mr. Burns, he is the perfect corporate, uh, like sort of a villain you and represents all bad th oh, nuclear... Right. right, If you could get him on yes. Deal Book. That's a good idea. We could have him here. When is Deal Book coming up? It's in about a month, but don't you think we should, we should try to Actually, get him? Actually, that would be really cool. Get him on. That could be kind of fun. <laughs> Andrew, I, I have to say that, I mean, this is amazing. It's totally random, it's by the totally way. Cool. I got an email out of nowhere from the it. casting director. I love it. Asking if I would do it, and they had this scene that they had written. So I thought this is, you know. That's perfect. Uh, I'm it's kind of fun. Going to think. So a big thank you, by the way, to the Simpsons team because they were all and awesome I'm thinking, people. I, I'm just very in my exciting. own uh, naive way. I'm going to say it's because of Squawk Box. Yeah. You, you're prompt. You're this. It's not. Because the New York Times is a pretty right. big deal. Really because of you, actually. But, no, no. Just, let's just, I don't think it is. Just, but I mean, I assume it's because yeah. of, of, I mean, the New York Times, it yeah. gets, gets far and wide. Yeah. But then there's Kara Swisher. What, I don't understand that. What is that? Well, we had, it was, it was just a big wheel. And, she, yeah. and there was a big, you know, there's an episode all about Silicon Valley and how all these things had happened. So okay. there was a, a whole bunch of people. Ken Burns, by the way, uh, was in there. Uh, Not related to Mr. Burns. No, but they were doing he a sort of Burns. mock, uh, a sort of pretend uh, documentary yeah. about the character. So there was, a, there was a whole bunch of fun things going on What's throughout this episode. What's his assistant's name? Is he still around? Did, was he there? The Mr. guy with Burns the glasses. Smithers. Smithers. Yeah, yeah. Smithers. Was he around? Not in... I. I well, you weren't actually in that room with... With Mr. Burns, were you? <laughs> no. Okay. I was in a, I was in like right. a little recording booth in Midtown. Were you sick? The nice place he had there. You did it because your voice was a little different. I didn't was recognize it? it at first. I don't know. Play it back a little. It's, I don't know what. I don't know how my voice, voice was. I was probably trying to. Uh, no, I know, but I you know, sound, different. sound the part, whatever that is. Sound more official than I really am, probably. You got the, yeah, the blue shirt and the jacket. I mean, that was all. They very they active. did very well. I was yeah. very you know clean tie. Didn't know what. Surprised they didn't have a little pocket square. You want to call the illustrators? And that is Squawk Pod for today. A busy Monday. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Get the best of our TV show right in your ears when you follow Squawk Pod. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, let us know. Rate Squawk Pod wherever you listen or write a brief review on Apple Podcasts. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>